This is the Darkest Page Podcast. remember that suggestions arising from this ballad led us to a train of thought wherein there became manifest an opinion of Usher's, which I mention not so much on account of its novelty, or other men have thought thus, as an account of the pertinacity with which he maintained it. This opinion in its general form was that of a sentience of all vegetable things. But in his disorderly fancy, the idea had assumed a more daring character and trespassed under certain conditions upon the kingdom of inorganization. I lack words to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted, with the grey stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentience had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collocation of these stones, in the order of their arrangement, as well in that of many fungi which overspread them, and of the decayed trees which stood around, above all in the long undisturbed endurance of this arrangement, and in its reduplication in the still waters of the tarn. Its evidence the evidence of the sentience was to be seen, he said, and I here stated as he spoke, in the gradual yet certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the waters and the walls. The result was discoverable, he added, in that silent yet inopportune and terrible influence which for centuries had moulded the destinies of his family, and which made him what I now saw him, what he was. Such opinions need no comment, and I will make none. Our books, the books which for years had formed no small portion of the mental existence of the invalid, were, as might be supposed, in strict keeping with this character of phantasm. We pored together over such works as the Verve et Chartreuse, the Belfegor of Machiavelli, the Heaven of Hell of Swedenborg, the subterranean voyage of Nicholas Klim by Holberg, the charomancy of Robert Flood, of Jean de Indagine, and of De la Chambre, the journey into the blue distance of Tique, and the city of the sun of Campanella. One favourite volume was a small octavo edition of the Dictatorum Inquisitorium by the Dominican Emmerich de Grion and there were passages in Pomponius Mnella about the old African satyrs and epigons over which Usher would sit dreaming for hours. His chief delight, however, was found in the perusal of an exceedingly rare and curious book 
in Quattro Gothic. The Manual of a Forgotten Church. The Vigile Mortorium Secundum Chorum Ecclesiae Maguntinae. I could not help thinking of the wild ritual of this work and of its probable influence upon the hypochondriac when, one evening, having informed me abruptly that the Lady Madeline was no more, he stated his intention of preserving her corpse for a fortnight, previously to its final internment, in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building. The worldly reason, however, assigned for this singular proceeding was one which I did not feel at liberty to dispute. The brother had been led to his resolution, so he told me, by consideration of the unusual character of the malady of the deceased, of certain obtrusive and eager inquiries on the part of her medical man, and of the remote and exposed situation of the burial ground of the family. I will not deny that when I called to mind the sinister countenance of the person whom I met upon the stairs, on the day of my arrival at the house, I had no desire to oppose what I regarded as at best but a harmless, and by no means an unnatural, precaution. At the request of Usher, I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body having been encoffined, we two alone bore it to its rest. The vault in which we placed it, and which had been so long unopened that our torches, half smothered in the oppressive atmosphere, gave us little opportunity for investigation, was small, damp, and entirely without means of admission for light. Laying at great depth, immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment. It had been used, apparently, in remote feudal times for the worst purposes of a donjon keep, and in later days as a place of deposit for powder, or some other highly combustible substance, as a portion of its floor, and the whole interior of a long archway through which we reached it, were carefully sheathed with copper. The door of massive iron had been also similarly protected. Its immense weight caused an unusually sharp grating sound as it moved upon its hinges. Having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror, we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin and looked upon the face of the tenant. A striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention, and Usher, divining perhaps my thoughts, murmured out some few words from which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, and that sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed. The disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left, as usual in all maladies of a strictly cataleptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lips which is so terrible in death. We replaced and screwed down the lid, and having secured the door of iron, made our way with toil into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house. 
and now, some days of bitter grief having elapsed, an observable change came over the features of the mental disorder of my friend. His ordinary manner had vanished, his ordinary occupations were neglected or forgotten. He roamed from chamber to chamber with hurried, unequal and objectless step. The pallor of his countenance had assumed, if possible, a more ghastly hue, but the luminousness of his eye had utterly gone out. The once occasional huskiness of his tone was heard no more, and a tremulous quaver, as if of extreme terror, habitually characterised his utterance. There were times, indeed, when I thought his unceasingly agitated mind was labouring with some oppressive secret, to divulge which he struggled for the necessary courage. At times again, I was obliged to resolve all into the mere inexplicable vagaries of madness, for I beheld him gazing upon vacancy for long hours, in an attitude of the profoundest attention, as if listening to some imaginary sound. It was no wonder that his condition terrified, that it infected me. I felt creeping upon me, by slow yet certain degrees, the wild influences of his own fantastic yet impressive superstitions. It was especially upon retiring to bed late in the night of the seventh or eighth day after the placing of the Lady Madeline within the donjon that I experienced the full power of such feelings. Sleep came not near my couch, while the hours waned and waned away. I struggled to reason off the nervousness which had dominion over me. I endeavoured to believe that much, if not all of what I felt was due to the bewildering influence of the gloomy furniture of the room, of the dark and tattered draperies which, tortured into motion by the breath of a rising tempest, swayed fitfully to and fro upon the walls, and rustled uneasily about the decorations of the bed. But my efforts were fruitless. An irrepressible tremor gradually pervaded my frame, and at length there sat upon my very heart an incubus of utterly causeless alarm. Shaking this off with a gasp and a struggle, I uplifted myself upon the pillows, and peering earnestly within the intense darkness of the chamber, hearkened. I know not why, except that an instinctive spirit prompted me, to certain low and indefinite sounds which came through the pauses of the storm, at long intervals, I knew not whence. Overpowered by an intense sentiment of horror, unaccountable yet unendurable, I threw on my clothes with haste, for I felt that I should sleep no more during the night and endeavoured to arouse myself from the pitiable condition into which I had fallen by pacing rapidly to and fro through the apartment. I had taken but a few turns in this manner when a light step on the adjoining staircase arrested my attention. I presently recognised it as that of Usher. In an instant afterward he rapped, with a gentle touch at my door, and entered bearing a lamp. His countenance was, as usual, cadaverously wan, but, moreover, there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes, and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanour. His air appalled me, but anything was preferable to the solitude which I had so long endured, and I even welcomed his presence as a relief. 
And have you not seen it? He said abruptly after having stared about him for some moments in silence. You have not seen it, but stay, you shall. Thus speaking and having carefully shaded his lamp, he hurried to one of the casements and threw it freely open to the storm. The impetuous fury of the entering gust nearly lifted us from our feet. It was indeed a tempestuous yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and its beauty. A whirlwind had apparently collected its forces in our vicinity, for there were frequent and violent alterations in direction of the wind, and the exceeding density of the clouds, which hung as low as to press upon the turrets of the house, did not prevent our perceiving the lifelike velocity with which they flew careering from all points against each other, without passing away into the distance. I say that even their exceeding density did not prevent our perceiving this, yet we had no glimpse of the moon or stars, nor was there any flashing forth of the lightning. But the undersurfaces of the huge masses of agitated vapour, as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us, were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and distinctly visible gaseous exhalation which hung about and enshrouded the mansion. You must not, you shall not behold this, said I, shuddering to Usher, as I led him, with a gentle violence, from the window to a seat. These appearances which bewilder you are merely electrical phenomena not uncommon, or it may be that they have their ghastly origin in the rank miasma of the tarn. Let us close this casement. The air is chilling and dangerous to your frame. Here is one of your favourite romances. I will read and you shall listen. And so we will pass away this terrible night together. The antique volume which I had taken up was The Mad Tryst of Sir Lancelot Canning. But I had called it a favourite of Usher's more in sad jest than in earnest. For in truth there is little in its uncouth and unimaginative prolixity which could have had interest for the lofty and spiritual identity of my friend. It was, however, the only book immediately at hand and I indulged a vague hope that the excitement which now agitated the hypochondriac might find relief, for the history of mental disorder is full of similar anomalies, even in the extremeness of the folly which I should read. Could I have judged, indeed, by the wild overstrained air of vivacity with which he hearkened, or apparently hearkened, to the words of the tale, I might well have congratulated myself upon the success of my design. I had arrived at that well-known portion of the story where Ethelred, the hero of the tryst, having sought in vain for peaceable admission into the dwelling of the hermit, proceeds to make good an entrance by force. Here, it will be remembered, the words of the narrative ran thus. And Ethelred, who was by nature of a doughty heart, and who was not mighty withal, on account of the powerfulness of the wine which he had drunken, waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit, who, in sooth, was of an obstinate and maliceful turn, but feeling the rain upon his shoulders, and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his mace outright, and with blows made quick room in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand, and now pulling therewith sturdily, he so cracked and ripped and tore all asunder, that the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood Alarumed and reverberated throughout the forest. At the termination of this sentence I started and, for a moment, paused, for it appeared to me 
although I at once concluded that my excited fancy had deceived me. It appeared to me that, from some very remote portion of the mansion, there came indistinctly to my ears what might have been, in its exact similarity of character, the echo, but a stifled and dull one certainly, of the very cracking and ripping sound which Sir Lancelot had so particularly described. It was beyond doubt the coincidence alone which had arrested my attention, for amid the rattling of the sashes of the casements and the ordinary commingled noises of the still increasing storm, the sound in itself had nothing, surely, which should have interested or disturbed me. I continued the story. But the good champion Ethelred, now entering within the door, was sore enraged and amazed to perceive no signal of the maliceful hermit. But in the stead thereof, a dragon of a scaly and prodigious demeanour, and of a fiery tongue which stayed in guard before a palace of gold, with a floor of silver, and upon the wall there hung a shield of shining brass, with this legend enwritten. Who entereth herein, a conqueror hath been. Who slayeth the dragon, the shield he shall win. And Ethelred uplifted his mace and struck upon the head of the dragon, which fell before him and gave up his pesty breath, with a shriek so horrid and harsh, and withal so piercing, that Ethelred had feigned to close his ears, with his hands against the dreadful noise of it, the like whereof was never before heard. Here again I paused abruptly, and now, with a feeling of wild amazement, for there could be no doubt whatever that, in this instance, I did actually hear, although from what direction it proceeded I found it impossible to say, a low and apparently distant, but harsh, protracted, and most unusual screaming or grating sound, the exact counterpart of what my fancy had already conjured up from the dragon's unnatural shrieking, as described by the romancer. Oppressed, as I certainly was, upon the occurrence of this second and most extraordinary coincidence, by a thousand conflicting sensations, in which wonder and extreme terror were predominant, I still retained sufficient presence of mind to avoid exciting, by any observation, the sensitive nervousness of my companion. I was by no means certain that he had noticed the sounds in question, although assuredly a strange alteration had, during the last few minutes, taken place in his demeanour. From a position fronting my own, he had gradually brought round his chair, so as to sit with his face to the door of the chamber, and thus I could but partially perceive his features, although I saw that his lips trembled as if he were murmuring inaudibly. His head had dropped upon his breast, yet I knew that he was not asleep, from the wide and rigid opening of the eye as I caught a glance of it in profile. The motion of his body, too, was at variance with this idea, for he rocked from side to side with a gentle, yet constant and uniform sway. Having rapidly taken note of all this, I resumed the narrative of Sir Lancelot, which thus proceeded. And now, the champion having escaped from the terrible fury of the dragon, bethinking himself of the brazen shield, and of the breaking up of the enchantment which was upon it, removed the carcass from out of the way before him, and approached valeriously over the silver pavement of the castle, to where the shield was upon the wall. 
which in sooth tarried not for his full coming, but fell down at his feet upon the silver floor with a mighty, great, and terrible ringing sound. No sooner had these syllables passed my lips than, as if a shield of brass had indeed, at the moment fallen heavily upon a floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct, hollow, metallic, and clangorous, yet apparently muffled reverberation. Completely unnerved, I leapt to my feet, but the measured rocking movement of Usher was undisturbed. I rushed to the chair in which he sat. His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. But, as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person. A sickly smile quivered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried and gibbering murmur, as if unconscious of my presence. Bending closely over him, I at length drank in the hideous import of his words. Not hear it. Yes, I hear it, and have heard it. Long, 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 many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dare not. Oh, pity me, miserable wretch that I am. I dare not. I dare not speak. We have put her living in the tomb. Said, said I not that my senses were acute? I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them, many many days ago yet i dared not i dared not speak and now tonight ethelred <laughs> the breaking of the hermit's door and the death cry of the dragon and the clangor of the shield say rather the rending of her coffin and the grating of the iron hinges of the prison and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault oh whither shall i fly will she not be here anon is she not hurrying to upbraid me for my haste? Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman! Here he sprang furiously to his feet and shrieked out his syllables as if in the effort he was giving up his soul. Madman, I now tell you that she stands without the door! As if in the superhuman energy of his utterance there had been found the potency of a spell. The huge antique panels to which the speaker pointed threw slowly back. Upon the instant, their ponderous and ebony jaws. It was the work of the rushing gust, but then without those doors there did stand the lofty and enshrouded figure of the Lady Madeline of Usher. There was blood upon her white robes and the evidence of some bitter struggle upon every portion of her emaciated frame. For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold. Then, with a low moaning cry, fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother, and in her violent and now final death agonies, bore him to the floor a corpse, and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated. From that chamber, and from that mansion I fled aghast. The storm was still abroad in all its wrath, and I found myself crossing the old causeway. Suddenly there shot along the path the wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued. 
while the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full setting and blood-red moon which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure of which I have before spoken as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base. While I gazed, this fissure rapidly widening, there came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters, and the deep, dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the house of Usher. Thank you for listening to the Darkest Page podcast. This has been The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. This episode was made possible with the support of the librarians of the Darkest Page, Alex Smith and Tonks. To see how you can support the Darkest Page, please visit patreon.com forward slash the darkest page. I have been your host, and I wish you pleasant dreams.